Exodus 12. As you're opening to Exodus 12, I want to read another scripture to you from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.16. I want to read this as a reminder. Paul writes, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote those words to Timothy, Timothy was a pastor. And Paul is writing to his spiritual son Timothy and he says Timothy remember that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable and I say that because we are in Exodus 12 and we're in a section of the scripture that is is difficult it's difficult because we're looking at these 10 plagues that have come upon Egypt and we are at the last plague which was the death of the firstborn. Now, why is it important for us to understand that all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable? Because one of the most amazing things about the Bible is this. God puts everything in His Word. Now, if man was going to write a book to try to get someone to believe in a God, he wouldn't put everything in the Bible that God has put in the Bible. Because God puts the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly in there. He doesn't hide man's sin. He doesn't hide even men like David, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. And the Bible doesn't cover for David whatsoever. The Bible just puts everything there right out in the open for everyone to see and everyone to know. And it reveals the true condition of humanity apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to finish Exodus 12 today. And this is the beauty of going through the Bible and allowing the Bible to inform us as to what it is that we need to know. So as we work our way verse by verse through the Scripture, God is teaching us. And we don't have the luxury to say, well, I think I'm just going to skip over this section of Scripture because it's a little bit unpleasant to talk about the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Now, God put it in His Word for a reason. It teaches us, it informs us, and it instructs us. So let's read uh, Exodus chapter 12. We're at the last section of this chapter. There's 51 verses, and I'm going to read from verse 29 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds 
as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their cloths on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is brought for money, who is bought for money when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to to their armies. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take this word, take this gospel, and by the power of your spirit, Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. Illuminate your word that it would change us and transform us, that it would renew our mind and that we would be a people conformed to the very image of the Son of God, that we would give witness to your glory and to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So the tenth and final plague that God brought upon Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And what these verses, particularly the first two verses that I read here, verse 29 and verse 30, which shows us that it came to pass, and at midnight it says, the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. 
and all the animals. And a great cry went up in Egypt, and there was not a house where there was not one dead. And what this shows us is that from top to bottom, Egypt was sinful, and all things in her were fallen and corrupted by sin. But not only Egypt, but Israel also. And not only Egypt and Israel, but the entire world is under the curse. The entire creation has come under the curse of sin. It is fallen. And it says in Egypt, there was not a house where there was not one dead. So we see that sin has corrupted not just Egypt, but sin had corrupted the entire world. And that the holiness of God stands opposed to the sinfulness of a fallen, sin-corrupted humanity and world. God's holiness justifies His wrath. These verses recording God's wrath on Egypt as clearly as any other verses in the Bible inform us that man is sinful, that what we call original sin the guilt of fallen humanity before God is real. The Scripture teaches us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek after God. There is none who do good. That comes not from the New Testament. It's recorded in the New Testament. Paul records those words for us in Romans chapter 3. They're found in Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. But Paul is quoting from Psalm 14, and he's quoting from Psalm 53, and he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting from Ecclesiastes 7.20 where it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek after God. That's not something that we find when we get to Paul's letter to the church in the New Testament. This is something that the Scripture teaches us throughout, that man is in need of a Savior. Paul quotes these passages for us and he sums up the human condition by declaring there in Romans chapter 3 that all the world is guilty before God and that no flesh will be justified in his sight by the deeds of the law. In other words, there is no way for man to earn God's favor. God's holiness and righteousness is infinitely beyond any work fallen man could ever perform. God is light. Man is darkness. That's what the Scripture teaches us. That God is completely other than man. And until God shines His light and dispels the darkness of man's heart, man remains willfully and hopelessly separated from God. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 Paul reminds us of the creation he says the same God who shone a light out of the darkness in creation is the same God who shines a light in your heart to give to you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ And Paul is saying, your hearts, our hearts are darkness, just like 
at the beginning of the creation, before there was light, there was darkness until God said, let there be light. And when God says, let there be light, in your heart, he shines that light, dispels the darkness. But until that happens, we are fundamentally, diametrically opposed to God because God is light and we are darkness. Paul writes this also in Ephesians 5.8 where he writes to the Ephesian church and he says, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And this is the good news. The good news is that God has come. Christ has come. And Christ has made a way where there is no way. We once were darkness, but now in Christ, in the Lord, we are light. And we now can walk as children of light. The new book that we're reading called Yawning Tigers. It's an interesting title. I'll let you read the book to figure out why that's the title the author picked. But in the very beginning of this book, the author quotes Oswald Chambers, and I, I think it's worth quoting here today. Oswald Chambers says, The danger, there is a danger of forgetting that the Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense, blazing holiness of God with the love of God as the center of that holiness. Matthew Henry writes this, no attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. And it's why we oftentimes don't like to talk about scriptures like this. We like to skip over those and go to those favorite scriptures that just paint a picture that everything is lovely. And if we just have enough faith, we're never going to have hard times on this earth. The problem with that is we all know that's a lie. Because we have all, at some time or another, or you are walking through them right now, hard times in your life. And it's not because you don't have enough faith. It's not because you don't love God enough. It's not because of something you have done. It's because This is the condition that we live in. We live in a fallen world, and the fallenness of this world will inevitably touch us. Sometimes it may just graze us, but other times it is going to come head on, and we will feel as though we are being crushed under the weight of that fallenness. And the holiness of God demands the satisfaction of God's wrath. And this is what we see in Egypt. It's not that the Israelites were better than the Egyptians. It's not that the Israelites were less sinful than the Egyptians. It's not that the firstborn was more sinful than the secondborn. And that's why God took the firstborn. That has nothing to do with it. This is a picture of a holy God in a sinful world. And we don't like to talk about the holiness of God oftentimes because it reminds us of our own unholiness. And when we talk about the holiness of God and we consider the holiness of God, 
we began to realize what it is that we truly deserve. And none of us want what we truly deserve. We want God's grace. And here in Egypt, we see a picture that Israelite and Egyptian all deserved the wrath of God, but God, and we saw, we've seen this as we've worked through Exodus, God Himself said, I will make a difference between the Egyptians and my children. I will make a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It's not that there was a difference in the level of sinfulness between Egyptian and Israelite. It's that God made a difference. They all deserved the wrath of God, but God made a difference and He poured wrath on some and He gave grace to others. But here's what we need to understand. The holiness of God demands the satisfaction of God's wrath. And it's not that you or I are less deserving of His wrath. It's that you and I have been the recipients of His grace if you are trusting in Jesus today. God's holiness justifies a separation from this world. In verses 31-39, through 39, we see now the process after the, after the death of the firstborn and the, tr- and the cry goes up in Egypt. Now the Egyptians are not just asking the Israelites to leave. The Bible says that the Israelites are now being driven out of the land. So through each successive plague, Moses has gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go, and Pharaoh would not let them go. Now after this tenth plague, Pharaoh says, get out. You your children, your animals, take everything and leave. In fact, if you need anything, take it also. And the people says, please, please leave before we all end up dead. And the Bible says that the Egyptians drove the Israelites out of the land. They weren't just invited out, they were driven out. Israel struggled in the wilderness with doubt and unbelief. We're going to see this as we go through Exodus. Desiring to go back to the familiarity of Egypt. It was not Egypt that wanted Israel back. It was Israel that wanted to go back to Egypt. And the same sin can be true for us. The holiness of God is fundamentally opposed to this world. And that's why the world is constantly trying to remake God in its own image. The holiness of God demands that there be a separation from the world. And the world desires to turn God into someone who loves and accepts all things and all people with no consideration of His holiness. So we see that the world has redefined holiness and sin. So think about this. By the world's standard, holiness is now determined by our ability to tolerate and accept those things that the Scripture defines as sinful. Sin is no longer determined by the standard God has set in His Word, but sin is now the failure to tolerate or accept 
anything or anyone the world has deemed acceptable. If you don't accept what the world finds acceptable, what are you called today? You're called a hater. You're called intolerant. You're called an antagonist. And while the world is trying to create this monolithic culture where everyone is the same, where we all worship the same God and we all live the same lifestyle and we all believe the same things and we all accept the same things, that's what the world is working for. That's what the world has always worked for. That didn't just begin in the 19th or 20th or 21st century. This is what the world has. The world system, the system that is opposed to God, that's what this has always been trying to achieve. Man has set his own ever-changing standard, and unless you adhere to that standard, you are intolerant, hater, opposed. A rebel. The holiness of God has been under attack from the beginning. Satan rebelled against the holiness of God when he decided that he would take God's place. And instead, he was kicked out of heaven and a third of the angels with him. Satan also rebelled against the holiness of God in the garden. It's recorded for us in Genesis. And man rebelled against the holiness of God by rejecting God's truth, in fact, rejecting God's holiness, and seeking his own in the knowledge of good and evil. And we see that man is still in rebellion today. Satan is still in rebellion today. This is not a new battle. It's a very old battle. God calls His people to come out and to be separate from the world. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Come out from among them and be ye separate. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That was in Jesus' prayer recorded in John 17.16. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. There is a difference. We're in the world, but we're not to be like the world. We're to be distinct and different. And that distinction must begin within us, in our spirit, in our heart, and in our mind. From within, it will work out and be seen and known by those around us. God's not calling us to separate from the world geographically. We talked about this today in, in our Sunday school lesson. In the early church, in the first few centuries of the church, the monastic movement, this movement of asceticism where people would go out and become hermits and live, live to themselves and separate themselves from everyone and everything, and they thought they were somehow being closer to God. But that's not what the Bible commands us to do. He's calling us to separation in a spiritual sense. We're growing up in the world, but we are different and distinct. What is within us will determine the fruit that will manifest through us. 
If we are of the world, we will produce the fruit of the world. If we are of God, we will produce the fruit of His Spirit. His Spirit in us makes us different. In the parable of the wheat and the tares of the field, Jesus said the field is the world and the wheat and the tares grow up together in the world, but there comes a time when the fruit distinguishes between what's a wheat and what's a tare. One is to be harvested and put in the Father's barn, and one is to be harvested and thrown in the fire. And Jesus said, the world is the, the field represents the world, the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom, and the tares represent the sons of the enemy. But we see that they grow up together. And that's the way it is in the world. When the Bible calls us to be separate, it doesn't mean that we're to isolate ourselves. The holiness of God demands that we be a people distinct in this world, not a people joined to or isolated from the world. So we're not to do either one of those. We're not to join ourselves to the world and become like the world and fit in with the world. And we're not to isolate ourselves and separate ourselves and and try to get as far away from the world as we can so that the world won't rub off on us. Because our problem doesn't come from outside. Our problem is within. It is our nature. It is the human condition. It is our innate fallenness that is our problem. And the solution is not to run away from our sinfulness. Jesus said the solution is you got to be born again. So the holiness of God demands that we be a people different and distinct from the world. The holiness of God justifies God's salvation. The children of Israel left, it says they left the land of Egypt on the very day that they entered it. So we go back to Genesis. Remember the account in Genesis when Joseph is sold into slavery. Little Joseph, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, a slave. But then 13 years later, Joseph is not little anymore. He's not just some dreamer teenager. He is now the second in command over this empire of Egypt. And the long story short, through that, seemingly disastrous event of a young man being sold into slavery and left for dead for all practical purposes because that's what his brothers wanted. Get rid of him. If he dies, his blood's not going to be on our hands. We'll just sell him to these Midianite traders and, and whatever they do with him, it's out of our control. Yes, it was out of their control. Because what they meant for evil, Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that act of selling a brother into slavery saved a nation. In fact, it saved the world because Judah didn't die in the famine. Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, was ultimately born in Bethlehem to marry the virgin young woman, the mother of Jesus. None of that would have happened had Joseph not been sold into slavery, had he not saved his family. And so at the end of all of that, Joseph brings the entire family. The Bible says 70 souls came with, with Jacob. 
And Jacob and his family come and they live in Egypt. And that is the beginning of 430 years of the nation of Israel. They began with 70 and now they're leaving with 600 men, not counting women and not counting children. They began with 70. There is well over a million leaving Egypt now, along with a mixed multitude. The holiness of God demands the holiness of God's people. Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes this scripture in Leviticus and he records it for the believers in his letter, 1 Peter 1.16, confirming that God has called his people to holiness. God is holy, therefore he commands his people to be holy. But we need to understand this, church. We cannot become holy by our works. We are made holy in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone do we become holy. And only in Christ can we delight in the holiness of God. It's not our working that makes us holy. It is our resting in Christ. Our walk, our lifestyle is a product of a new creation in Christ. In that new creation, we are given a new heart. In Christ, our transformation is taking place through the renewing of our mind by the power of God's Spirit working in us. In Romans 12, Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Don't be conf- uh, Brothers, I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. No longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. We will ultimately conform to what we love. If we love God, we will desire to conform to God and to His holiness. Jonathan Edwards writes, a true love of God must begin with a delight in His holiness and not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without this. If God is not holy, He is nothing. He can be nothing else if he is not first holy. We delight in God's love for obvious reasons because his love has saved us in Christ. But we must understand that only through holiness was Jesus Christ, the God-man, able to save us from the wrath of God. The sacrifice God demanded to take away our sin was a perfect and a holy sacrifice. Jesus was born and lived and died the holy, sinless Lamb of God. The holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ made His sacrifice acceptable to satisfy the wrath of God. God is holy. We are unholy in ourselves. We are made holy in Christ when we are born again of the Spirit. We become holy when we are joined and made one with the Holy One. 
Paul writes this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God does not accept us apart from His holiness. And He has given to us, He has imputed to us His holiness and His righteousness in Jesus Christ. The holiness of God is satisfied by Christ and applied to us through faith in Him. In the last eight verses of this chapter, in Exodus 12, we see that it is man that must conform to the ways of God. So we see here at this 10th plague, this is where God institutes the Passover. And we just celebrated Easter last Sunday. But the week before that, on Monday, was Passover, the Jewish Passover. Jesus was crucified at Passover. He was resurrected on first fruits the Sunday following the Passover. Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples. 1,500 years after Moses and the children of Israel first celebrated the Passover or kept the Passover in Egypt, the night they were kicked out. And God gave them instruction concerning the Passover. And one of those instructions was that you are to observe this every year. And you're to do it, and you're to teach your children and your children's children for all generations. And participation in the Passover commemorated the salvation of the nation. It was not only Israel's deliverance from the bondage and oppression of Egypt, and their subsequent entry into the land of promise, but death had literally passed over them. Passover commemorates their deliverance from the destroyer and the life that God granted to them in His grace. Remember, Israelites were not less sinful. That's not why death passed them over. It was God's grace that caused death to pass over the Israelites. To celebrate that reality, to become part of that people commemorating their salvation, God commanded that all who participate must conform to His ways. The world wants us to conform to its ways. God says, you must conform to my ways. We have a bad habit in the church of trying to make God acceptable to the world. We change our Bibles, we change our songs, we change our preaching and our teaching, we change our buildings, we change everything in an effort to make God more acceptable to the world, yet you will never find any place in the Scripture where we are commanded to make God more acceptable to the world. God stands above everything and said, you must conform to me, period. And we find out that that is an impossible task in and of ourselves. And apart from God's grace, we are hopelessly lost and unable to do that. So we see here in the regulations that God gave concerning the Passover that it is man that must conform to the ways of God. 
The Passover points us to Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for our sin. It also pictures for us the Lord's table that we are invited to each week as the body of Christ. The regulations for the Passover speak to us concerning Christ and His table. We quote it very often before we come to the table. We quote the words of Jesus, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Because that Passover that God instituted pointed us to Jesus and everything concerning Jesus. Verses 43 through 45, God says, No foreigner may eat it. Passover was for the covenant people of God. Only those bearing the sign of the covenant God made with Abraham, that was circumcision, could eat it. We see this in Genesis 17 11. That's when God told Abraham, Circumcise yourself. In every male in your household, this is the covenant that I make with you. We saw in Exodus that God was ready to kill Moses because Moses had not circumcised his son. And his wife went over and did it for him. And the Bible says, saved Moses' life. So our salvation in Christ today God saves His people. So Passover was for the covenant people of God. So is our salvation in Christ today. That's why we do not believe in universal salvation. Salvation is for God's people. God saves His people. Verse 46. So in order to become saved, what must you do? Jesus said you must be born again. You must trust in Jesus. By grace, through faith, you are saved. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Verse 46, he says, In one house it shall be eaten. There is a reason the church, the body of Christ, assembles together each week. We are commanded to come together in one house to worship and commemorate the salvation God has provided for us. We are commanded to eat in one house the lamb that was slain for us. This is exactly what is pictured for us in the Lord's table as we assemble together and worship each week. It doesn't mean you can't have communion outside the church. It doesn't mean you have to be in a building like this or a cathedral. You can have church in a house. The point is, God has called His people to come together. He gave very strict instructions at the Passover that they weren't to eat it alone. If you lived alone, then go to your neighbor's house and eat with your neighbor. But come together in one house and eat the lamb and keep the Passover. There is a reason why from the very beginning of our faith, the people of God have come together and congregated together and worshiped together because this is the pattern that God has consistently shown us throughout the Scripture. In one house it shall be eaten. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. It reminds me of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All over the world, there are people, 
believers that are gathering together to worship the Lord of glory today, all the congregation shall keep it. The phrases in one house and all the congregation reveal God's command for the corporate body of Messiah to come together and worship to celebrate their salvation and to give honor and glory to God. In verse 48, he says, No uncircumcised person shall eat it. No person, not part of the covenant community of God's people, shall eat it. God wasn't being mean. Say, well, gosh, why is God so strict? Why? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. It's, this is not just about going to your neighbor's house and having some lamb. God has instituted this because he is instructing us. Remember, we read the very first scripture in Timothy. All scripture is given by inspiration of God for instruction. God is instructing us here. He is showing us something in his word. He is, remember, giving us a road sign that's pointing us to Jesus. And he says, no uncircumcised person shall eat it. The Passover lamb was only for those who were identified as part of the covenant community of God's people. They had to conform to God's requirement and God's ways. And the same is true today. We see this in the table of the Lord. The communion of the Lord's body and blood each week is for those who believe, for those identified as part of the covenant community of believers in Jesus Christ. The whole family, and we see this in the Passover, the whole family, both young and old, ate the Passover. And this is one of the reasons we allow children of covenant parents to come to the table of the Lord. We consider the children of covenant parents to be members of the covenant community. We treat them as such, we talk to them as such, and we teach them as such. Our expectation is that the children of believing parents will be raised up as members of Christ's body in the community of Christ's people to manifest faith in Christ. The sign of the covenant today is no longer circumcision. How do we know that? Because the Bible is very clear on this. Paul was, they tried to kill Paul. That's why he was ultimately taken to Rome and imprisoned because the Jews tried to kill him because Paul taught, hey, you Greeks, you Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised in order to have salvation in Jesus. And they thought Paul was a heretic. But we see even in Acts chapter, I think Acts chapter 20, where the letter is written, Acts chapter 15, where the letter is written to the Gentile churches, where they said you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to be circumcised, abstain from sexual immorality. You can eat what you want to eat. If you want to eat bacon, eat bacon. You don't have to keep the law, but abstain from sexual immorality. This is why we say, it's okay today to eat shrimp. Some people say, well, if it's okay to eat shrimp today, how come homosexuality isn't accepted by God today? Well, because the Bible is very clear. Abstain from sexual immorality. Eat shrimp, you're okay there. But abstain from sexual immorality. 
so again, the, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. Not what we want it to say, but what it actually teaches us. So we see in the Passover, the whole family, both young and old, ate the Passover lamb. And the sign of the covenant today is baptism. That's what is now commanded in the new covenant. This is what Jesus said, go baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But like circumcision, baptism marks one as a covenant member, but it does not provide salvation. Circumcision did not provide salvation for the children of Israel. How do we know? We witness this by the generation that died in the wilderness. And why did they die there? They died there because of their unbelief. It is faith that marks us as truly saved. They all, young and old, ate the Passover meal. They all left Egypt. They all were baptized in Moses in the Red Sea. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. But only those who had faith were able to enter into the promise. Unbelief kept the covenant people from entering into the promise. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.19. We can be marked as covenant people, but our salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why when you come to the table today, I'm not standing there as a gatekeeper saying, now, you can't take this communion until you convince me that you're really saved. That salvation is between you and the Lord. If you come to this table, I am going to assume that you are trusting in Jesus. When you bring your children to that table, I am going to assume that you are covenant parents raising your children to be covenant members, raising them to trust in Jesus. Because we treat everybody, young and old, as members of the covenant community. We want to help parents, equip parents to raise up, to disciple their children, to trust in Jesus. And whether they trust on their mother's breast or whether they trust when they turn 7 or 13, I don't know. Only God knows. But we come to the table as a covenant people. But you know what's in your heart. And we know this is something that God cares about because God has instituted these regulations right at the beginning with the Passover. And Jesus carried those on when he broke bread with his disciples on that night before he was crucified as the Passover lamb. We're not looking for the Messiah to come. He has come. We're not commemorating something that's going to happen we are commemorating what jesus has done the finished work of the cross then he says in verse 49 he said they are all under one law whether they're jews or whether they're gentiles whether they're foreigners or whether they are fellows they are all under one law one law shall be for the native born or for the stranger who dwells among you now in Christ, that law is the law of faith. This is what Paul writes in Romans 3.27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Now in Christ, there is no longer a distinction between Jew or Gentile or any other natural identity according to the flesh. 
Our identity is now in Christ. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There is still only one law, and that is the law of faith in Jesus Christ. Now we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. In the last two verses of this chapter, it says, Thus the children obeyed. And the Lord brought them out of the land. There is something about obedience and holiness that are are eternally linked together. There is no holiness without obedience. And there is no obedience without holiness. The prophet Samuel told King Saul to obey is better than sacrifice after Saul tried to cover up his sin by sacrificing an animal to God. He got impatient and decided to move ahead of God. And he thought his sacrifice of an animal would satisfy God. But God's not interested in the blood of bulls and goats. It was never by the blood of bulls and goats that we would find ourselves acceptable to God. It is only by the blood of Christ. The children obeyed and God brought them out of the land. The holiness of Christ is bound up with His complete obedience to His Father. Our holiness is not earned by our obedience to God. Our obedience is produced by the life of the Holy One that dwells in us. If I'm a peach tree, I'm going to produce peaches because that's what my root is. If I'm in Christ, if I'm abiding in the vine, the true vine, the root, then my life is going to produce fruit consistent with that. Our obedience is produced from the life that is within us. Christ is our life and the fruit of His Spirit abiding in us will produce a life marked by holiness in Christ. Christ has set us free. That's what Paul writes in Galatians 5.1. That means that we are no longer bound by sin and death. Now in Christ, we are free to obey God. Now I want you to understand something. That doesn't mean God is up in heaven going, okay, now I've set you free. Now let's see how well you can obey waiting for us to make a mistake. Listen, what grace teaches us is that we are fallen creatures. And in and of ourselves, we have no capacity to be holy. We don't even have the capacity in and of ourselves to obey God. Much less attain to His holiness. Christ is our holiness. We have been made holy by His grace, by the gift of His life 
given to us in Jesus Christ. And if you are abiding in Christ today, you are holy because Christ is holy. Not because you act holy, not because you think holy, not because you look holy, not because you dress holy, not because you never make any mistakes because you do, not because you never have any errant thoughts because we all do. We all make mistakes. We all fall. We all fail. We all sin. So our sin is real. And our holiness is real. And our holiness is not determined by how well we manage our sinfulness. Our holiness has been determined by Jesus Christ. He gave it to us as a gift. He calls us holy. Therefore, we are because we are in Him. And that reality that we are in Him should motivate us, should give us a desire to live a life that honors Him, that conforms to who He is. Who is He? He is holy. So our desire should be holiness. But we need to always remember that we are incapable of attaining that even though it might be the thing that we want more than anything, it is only attainable in Christ. So I'm going to invite you now to come to the Lord's table, the feast on the Lamb that was slain for your sin. The table reminds us of the finished work of Christ, but it speaks of all that God has ahead for us. So I charge you to consider Christ to consider His holiness and the gift of life that He provides through His holy sacrifice. I pray that we would stop trying to earn our holiness, that we would cry out for His grace, that we would stop trying to justify our unholiness, that we would cry out for His grace, that we would look to Christ, to His sacrifice, to His life, not only the life that was given to us, but the life He lives now eternally, making intercession for us with the promise that He will come again one day. The life that we have now is eternal in Christ Jesus. It is to be lived now for His glory. You are God's people. You serve a holy God. Therefore, be holy. But be holy with His joy that is unspeakable and full of glory because of what Christ has done for us. Amen.